This episode contains spoilers for The Murder of Roger Ackroyd by Agatha Christie, so please proceed with care if you haven't read the book. Welcome to the Crime Fiction Casebook Podcast, a podcast exploring stories of murder, mystery, and suspense. I'm your host, Bridget, and once more I'm joined by my co-host, James. Hi. Today we're bringing you part two of our discussion of Agatha Christie's 1926 novel, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. In this episode, we'll be chatting about tall, dark strangers, lovable rogues, and secret meetings in the summer house, amongst other topics. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Should we talk about the tall, dark stranger? <laughs> he is a tall, dark stranger, isn't he? He's tall. Is he? Yeah, I think is he, he dark? is. Well, it is dark when they meet him. Yeah. Well, he's also a rough fellow. <laughs> yeah, I think he's more of a legitimately rough fellow than uh, Major Blunt. I think Major Blunt has constructed a persona as a rough fellow. But really, he's just a cuddly teddy bear. Not necessarily. I think really he's just got, you know, some sort of... He's clearly got a masculinity complex that has caused <laughs> him to go into the army, then become a big game hunter, and tell everyone he meets that he's a rough fellow. Yeah. Whereas this this guy, the tall, dark stranger, lives like, a genuinely rough life. Like he's a petty criminal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Charles Do you want to introduce Kent. him? Charles Kent. Yeah. So, I mean, he's this guy that a couple of people saw going to the house on the mm-hmm. night of the murder. He quickly becomes a very significant subplot in the story. And it turns out that he was the illegitimate son of Mrs. Russell, the very respectable housekeeper. Of Roger Ackroyd. Of Roger Ackroyd. Although not everyone thinks she's that respectable, do they? Well, I think they think she's respectable. It's just Mm. that some people are a little suspicious of her motives. Yeah, Mrs. Ackroyd thinks that she's... um, She's at the house with a view to marrying Roger Ackroyd. Yeah, which, which she be might fair, be. She probably is. Yeah, which is reasonable. Yeah, and like we have. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we have sympathy for her. I mean, why wouldn't you want it? Um, yeah. She's she's not she's fairly down at heel, isn't she? Um, she's an educated woman. Yeah. Uh, why wouldn't you want to marry the rich guy? Yeah, of I, th- I think it's and apparently joke. they all think she's kind of like all the men think she's she's got something to it. They're, oh, they're always talking about how attractive she is. Yeah. Being fair though. Mrs. Ackroyd, the sister-in-law, if you were in her position, you would be suspicious of someone trying to marry a brother-in-law because she is financially dependent on on Ackroyd. She comes across really badly um, because she's so panicky about her money and stuff, Mm -hmm. but you would be in that situation. Oh, yeah. She's in quite a... Her and her daughter are in a vulnerable situation. Um, Yeah, so Charles... Kent comes along and he meets his mother. Charles in the Kent, so named because he was born in Kent. Yeah, and <laughs> weirdly, like Poirot guesses that immediately. That's yeah. why he's called Kent. As, 
quite a leap of logic. I mean, yeah. there's lots of people who have place names as surnames, but... But it was them... It's because he suspects that he's an illegitimate yeah. son or something already, doesn't he? It was them who... It was those two who were meeting in the summer house after all. Yes. And we know was. this well, because... there were two meetings at the summer house. Well, there were, I think. I've forgotten. There were. But we know this because <laughs> they left behind a lot of evidence <laughs> of this meeting. So we also talked a little bit about how um, often in Agatha Christie or in detective novels in general, if people go somewhere... They often leave behind a bit of their clothing. Yes, the more illicit the meeting, the more evidence you accidentally leave behind. Yeah, so, like, how many times have you gone somewhere and, like, torn a bit of your clothes and left it? Or dropped your heroin quilt. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so Charles Kent is a heroin addict, is that right? Yes, as if it's not bad enough to be an illegitimate son, he's also a heroin addict. He lives in America and he's come over to get money. I think he lives in Canada. Yeah, something like that. Um, And he has a quill. (laughs) He gets picked up on the docks in Liverpool by the police. Yeah, he has a quill and he (laughs) leaves it in the summer house. And this, uh, oh no, someone, was it Mrs. Russell's clothing? Well, I might have misremembered this, but I thought it was Ursula Bourne's clothing. Yeah. So, yeah, we just thought that was a bit interesting. Yeah, we like Charles Kent. He's fun. He's fun because he's um, really he's, really he's a really rough fellow. Yeah. <laughs> um, what I think is quite fun about Mrs. Russell is the hilarious doctor's consultation she has the morning of the oh, murder. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because we don't know that she has this illegitimate son who is a heroin addict mm-hmm. and she goes to see Dr. Shepherd and she has this fantastic meeting with him, this appointment where she just goes like oh, I've come to ask you about drugs, let's talk yeah. about that and drug addiction. How, how does that work? And then she's like, and also like deadly poisons, <laughs> like do you know anything about those? And it's just like Yeah, oh, I this... mean, in, in the context of a Poirot when someone brings up deadly poisons yes. it's, it's another like, uh uh-uh. <laughs> Obviously, she wanted to find out about drug addiction because she's concerned about her son. And then when she goes to the doctor and talks about it, she's like, but I, How I can't, I cover I can't just that? turn up and talk about drug addiction. I have to cover for it. So, so she so concocts that... talking about deadly poisons. Yeah, that doesn't turn out too well for her. No, no. Oh, Makes well. her look a little bit suspicious. Certainly does. Although, to be fair, Dr. Shepard does her a few favours by stabbing Roger Ackroyd with a knife. Yeah. Uh, which yeah. makes it seem fairly unlikely that he might have been killed with yeah. deadly poisons. That's true. Right, I've mentioned Ursula Bourne, so should we talk about her? And uh, we haven't talked about Ralph Payton, which is quite significant. Do you want to talk about those two? Because I know you yeah. like them. I do, actually. So, Ralph Payton is... As we mentioned in the beginning, sorry if we've rambled on and you've forgotten by now, he is the adopted son of Roger Ackroyd, and everyone thinks he's done it all the way through the book. Literally everyone thinks... Well, actually, having said that, they all kind of think it's Ralph, but they don't don't want to believe it's Ralph. Because you know it's definitely not a guy that everyone thinks did it. I don't think... can't think of a single one where it is. Yeah, and they think this because, uh, well, he's your archetypal lovable rogue in Agatha Christie so he's a young military veteran he's handsome and he's a bit of a philanderer and a playboy he can't hold on to money he gambles you know yeah we all know the type so he's obviously he's you know he's got a motive because he always needs money 
he immediately disappears after the <laughs> after the murder, which looks a little bit suspicious. And um, his boot prints are on the windowsill of Roger Ackroyd's study mm. uh, in the manner of someone who would be making their escape. Um, but we quite... Well, we like Ralph Payton. Um, everyone in the village likes Ralph Payton. He's got this sort of, like, easy uh, friendliness to him that, um, well, you kind of get through hearsay. I have a theory that uh, we like him more than your average Agatha Christie lovable rogue because he's basically not there at all. So <laughs> he doesn't get the chance to annoy you in the way that a lot of these characters do. It turns out later on that um, he's been spending the time holed up in a um, in a sort of nursing home where Dr. Shepard has packed him away. Um, so anyway, Dr. Shepard basically as we've said, does the crime. And he sees Ralph Payton as a good person to... He frames him. He doesn't fully frame him, but he throws a lot of suspicion onto him. He goes to see him the next day and he tells him, everyone's going to think it's you because they found your boot prints on the windowsill. You have to go into hiding. And then obviously when he goes into hiding, everyone's like, oh God, it must have been Ralph. Notwithstanding, obviously, as part of Shepard's dastardly plan, he was the one who put the boot prints on the windowsill. (laughs) So, yeah. Do you well, think he did that by wearing the boots? Or do you think he put his hands into the boots <laughs> and did that thing where you walk with your hands? Well, as comic as that is, I think it says, I changed into Ralph's shoes. Um, oh. But that's a shame, because it, it, it would be funny if he just like put handprints on there. Um, so, yeah, that's what happens to Ralph in this book, and we don't really meet him until towards the end. But it turns out that he's um, linked into the subplot involving the suspicious maid uh, (laughs) Ursula Bourne who is basically, they're suspicious of her because she seems a bit haughty and educated and a maid's not supposed to be educated she's not like other maids I'm not like other maids she's not, is she? well, she does wear a cap and apron uh, which yeah. apparently some maids don't. Yeah, they. Um, it's actually what's so quite good about Agatha Christie's and other detective novels is you do get a sense of like what what is the market for the servants like at this point in time yeah. because everyone is always complaining about it and in this one they're complaining about how they won't wear the cap and apron anymore. Yeah. So well, anyway, they do manage to get Ursula born. Uh, but they don't like her because she's got too high an opinion <laughs> yeah, of herself. Yeah, she's not like and other maids. And it transpires, some suspicion falls onto her because it transpires that she has an argument with Ackroyd on the evening of his death. I think possibly before dinner and uh, hands in her notice. Yeah, which is, you know, but it's obviously really because she's actually married to Ralph Payton. Yes, because they fell in love secretly. Love. Actual they're... love, not marriage of convenience yes. and riches. Yes. Love. It turns out she's from a destitute Irish aristocratic family and uh, they've ended up in England and they're having to join the servile class. So that explains why she's sort of mm. educated and got this high opinion of herself. In fact, she did the classic uh, lying on your uh, CV by getting <laughs> her sister to fake her yeah. um, her reference, yeah. uh, which is always fun. Yeah. 
And her sister is really bad at covering for her. Yeah. Like, um, unbelievably bad at it. Because Dr. Shepard goes to investigate the reference. He goes round to this woman's house, mm-hmm. who's just her sister pretending to be an ex-employer. Yeah. And she acts really suspiciously. Like, she refuses to answer any questions. She gets really flustered mm-hmm. and annoyed about it. Mm-hmm. And, like, obviously it leaves the impression of, like, Dr. Shepard's like, what the hell is this? Like, and she could have just dealt with it just by being, like, doing the job properly, really. Yeah, Absolutely, but thankfully it turns out that... um, So this gets resolved by... It's from the fact that Poirot has already realised that Shepard is the true murderer. Mm. So he goes to find... He realises that Shepard will have got rid of Ralph Payton. He realises how Shepard would have done this, because he's a doctor, and he finds a local nursing home, and sure enough, Ralph Payton's there, and he goes and gets his side of the story. And it turns out that Ralph and Ursula fell in love, secretly got married, but they have no money. So (laughs) Ralph then comes up with the foolproof plan of agreeing to enter into an illegal marriage with his cousin-in-law? Is that how you describe their relationship? With Flora. They don't really like each other, but it would mutually assure them inheritance from Roger Ackroyd. And uh, yeah, that's uh, that's sort of the conclusion of that subplot. They have a they also have a meeting in the summer house as yeah. sort of kicked off this little discussion so, where they they I think Ursula comes to him and is like you know this is going on too far I'm going to come clean to your stepdad and they have a big argument and Ursula throws her ring in the pond. So I I want to talk about <laughs> Parker the butler. I think we should. I like Parker. And I feel he's pretty hard done by. Yeah, so do I, in, um, to be honest. In this book, because everyone goes around behaving as though he's the world's shiftiest butler. Yeah. They, they literally, no one, none of the other characters can mention Poirot without... Uh, Parker. Parker. <laughs> mention Parker without saying, God, he's shifty. Yeah, they just talk about it constantly, don't they? But it just made me think, like... He's not really done anything shifty, but, like, everyone is saying he's shifty all the time. So yeah. I just think, like... All, all he seems to do evidence? is go about his duties as a butler. I think the only evidence... <laughs> he must evidence, just have a really shifty face. The only evidence, I think, really, is that um, he panics a bit when the police come round on the night yeah, of the murder. Yeah, he does do that, which is kind of goes, reasonable. Oh, there's some white men going on. Yeah, it's but, kind of um, reasonable. Yeah, exactly. I think it's a bit harsh to just brand him as the shiftiest man you, alive you on the basis of that. You wonder why they employ him, considering they're all really distrustful of him. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Um, well, so. It's quite funny that in the TV production, what, what's quite interesting about Roger Ackroyd is that only, in the novel at least, only one person dies. Mm-hmm. There's yeah, only one count. murder. And obviously when they made the, the TV production, they clearly thought this wasn't enough death. Yeah, we need more murdering. They introduced the death of Parker, so Parker dies in the TV. So they they killed him off, yeah. They don't just kill him off either. Shepard runs him over. Yeah, he gets like run over by a car. Terrible. It's horrible, yeah. So um, he really doesn't come off well, poor Parker. But there we go. He was doing some blackmailing, though. He, he is a bit of a baddie. It, yeah. t- it turns out that his previous employer had had a long-standing blackmaily blackmailer relationship. Yeah, with that's him the subplot. Until he eventually died. I I really like how eager of a blackmailer he is. Oh yeah. Because <laughs> when he's listening at the door and he hears, he overhears like Shepard or Brackroyd saying the word blackmail, and he's immediately like. 
I want some of this. Yeah. <laughs> to be fair, you know, it's a pretty easy way to make your money. Yeah, if you're it? a I guess that's humble fine. butler, like, yeah. it's probably okay. Get some cash on the side. Yeah. He loses it all on the horses, though, doesn't he? Does he? I think, I think oh, he does. I can't remember. That might be Raymond, who knows. I think that the book is full of subplots for for an Agatha Christie. It feels like it's really full of them. Like there's theft, there's the illegitimate son who's a drug addict, there's a black male, the other, other black male. There's two, there's two black male. And obviously there's the secret marriage as well, but there's also like these aren't really subplots, but there's the suicide and there's the murder of mm-hmm. Mr. Ferris as well. Yep. So it feels like it's really stuff full of subplots. Like, I mean. Yeah, I think the subplots are very well managed in this book, though. In yeah. fact, I would say they're the making of the book. Yeah, I think the best thing about it is that the plotting is really clever. Yeah. The plotting's yeah, really yeah. good, and it's not, like, my favourite Agatha Christie. It's really, like, functional. It really does the job, though. Yeah. It ticks all the boxes. Well, except for people who don't think the murderer should be the narrator. But for me, it ticks all the boxes. Like, it's fine. It's just not my favourite, because I don't like Doctor Shepard. No. Well, no one likes Doctor Shepard. Yeah. And also the murder itself is quite like a functional murder. Like, it's not really... It's not got that flair of some of the murders, has I it? kind of thought... It's a bit petty. I kind of thought when uh, they discovered the body and he had the ceremonial knife stuck in his neck and I was suspecting the Doctor, my sort of theory was that the knife was a decoy and he might have been poisoned or something yeah, before I that. Yeah, I thought that as well. Yeah, it's very... and if the doctor did the medical report, then he might not. Exactly, you like, can just yeah. hide information. No, I did think that. Um, and something else that we thought was quite funny is that Poirot, <laughs> we should talk about Poirot's eyes. Yeah, so, so I mean, Poirot's eyes are always, like, glinting and stuff. But in this one, they full-on glow green. It says his eyes glow with a green light. A strange green light. Yeah. Yeah, it certainly is strange, Shepherd. I've never seen anyone else's eyes glow like that. I love it. Yeah, so we like that. But it signals the fact that he's got an idea or something. Indeed, yeah. Yeah. I like to think there's a sort of twitching of his moustaches as he does it as well. Yeah. To be fair, when you picture, um, I mean, personally, you can't picture Poirot (laughs) without imagining the David Suchet interpretation of him. And David Suchet does do a lot of big well he does little smiles with his mouth but he really he smiles with his whole face and his eyes do crinkle up very nicely yeah well we can talk about that another time because like you can't really talk Talk about about how much we love david suchet yeah and also the fact that in this novel poirot is a very different guy from the david suchet (laughs) yeah yeah I mean, that's it's not the elephant in the room, but um, Poirot is not as nice in this as you like him to be. He's not he, as nice in any of them. You sort of want him to be like David Suchet, but he doesn't... He just isn't, because yeah, he's just not as nice. Well, and mainly, he's just, for no reason, really rude about Hastings, who no one knows, and he's not even there. <laughs> <laughs> it's like weird, like, why are you talking yeah, about if, your yeah, friend if who's you were, not If you were hanging there. around with Poirot in this book, you'd be like, look, a murder has happened. Can you stop talking about this random guy who lives in Argentina, and you don't even have a good word to say about him. All you do is tell us about how simple he is. <laughs> not very helpful. And it's, it's and I hate when he's rude about Hastings. I hate when he's rude about Hastings when Hastings is there. Oh, yeah. Like, it's so uncalled for. Like, Hastings is a bit slow. Well, I mean, Hastings. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, that's, that's the other that's side a bit of, of an point. understatement. But... probably deserves a bit of criticism for his performance in some of these books. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> he's not even there to stick up for himself in this one, so it's yeah. a bit out of order. And, yeah. and you'd probably imagine some of the other characters would get a bit annoyed with him. So I think that another scene which is kind of pure humour... Yeah, yeah, it's, is... it, it gives you a couple of laughs, doesn't it? Yeah, it's fun. So there's a scene where they play Mahjong, Caroline and Dr Shepherd run this mahjong party yeah they got a couple of friends haven't yeah. they, in the village um i didn't know what mahjong was but apparently it's a tile game yes i don't from, know much i don't about think it. people don't play it anymore um i think they do do they yeah, oh yeah. you yeah. heard of it i'd never heard of it until yeah I, this. But I think there was sort of like a, a mahjong fad yeah around yeah like along with bridge and things yeah. like that um so they invite colonel carter and mrs yeah. gannett over to the house to play yeah. mahjong who are a right laugh they're a right they're a right bundle of laughs yeah aren't i mean they? obviously shepherd hates them he hates them he's so <laughs> rude about them you get the sense that he's like having this life where he doesn't really like the people he hangs around with. Yeah, that's like his boring day in the doctor's yeah. surgery where people just come to him with their gripes and then in the evening all he has to look forward to is playing Mahjong with <laughs> Colonel Carter and Mrs. Yeah. Gannett. Well, I thought it was quite cool is that they have, that it said in the novel, this is not really relevant, but it says that they have dinner and then they go over it and they have sandwiches and then they also have cake and tea yeah, and things. Yeah. I thought, wow, they've really eaten a lot. Well, I mean... Imagine that. You don't know what the portion sizes are yeah, like. Yeah, you don't really. <laughs> it did sound like a lot of eating. I though. suppose maybe if you cut the crusts off the uh, sandwiches, yeah. maybe you save some calories <laughs> there. But like, um, yeah... I mean, Colonel Carter's... Yeah, he, he is, to be fair to Shepard, he is a crashing bore. He's so boring. All he's interested <laughs> in doing is talking about the time he visited the Shanghai Club. Yeah, he keeps going on about Shepherd it Shepard doesn't believe that he really did. He goes on about it, like, all the time, doesn't he? he yeah, just talks about everything's just a reference to the Shanghai Club. <laughs> it's really weird and, yeah. and boastful. Yeah, it's awful. And Mrs. Gannett is like, she does this thing that is really annoying that people do in games where she keeps putting down her tiles and then going like, oh, no, I didn't mean that, and just scooping them yeah, all back yeah, up again and being same. like, just ignore it. I didn't mean that move. And it's yeah, just so like, annoying. Um, they have to say special words in Mahjong, don't they? And she's yeah, always saying the wrong thing. she's always ones. saying the wrong thing and playing the game wrong, so he finds that really annoying, obviously. Yeah, another thing that happens in this party, which I found quite amusing, and also sort of telling in a narrative sense, yeah. is like... Um, Caroline starts like goading Dr. Shepherd. Oh yeah, they like have a mini yeah. argument. And she um, starts going, Oh, you've been you've been hanging around with Poirot all this time, but you you don't know anything about the case. I I know loads about the case and I all mm-hmm. I do is hear from the milkman and stuff. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Shepherd, who has been going around telling us like how cool and collected and how above everyone he is, is just immediately triggered by this. And he's like, oh yeah, that's what you think? Well, what about this ring that we found? <laughs> and just like immediately produces like the only bit of evidence that they have, um, which I think is just a good indication of, um, well, A, he's pretty petty. It's so and, petty, it's unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> it also shows that maybe we shouldn't trust him when he talks about how great he is the whole yeah. time. Yeah, for sure. Are there any, um, should we, we should probably just mention Flora and Mrs. Aykroyd and their little plot. So the, the other piece of evidence that supports Dr. Shepard's alibi, and this just works out in his favour, really, this is a lucky strike for him, mm. is that, I can't remember what happens first, but at some point when, in truth, Aykroyd is lying dead with the dagger in his neck, Flora goes down to 
I think, to ask him for money. She, she goes down to ask him for money because uh, she's dependent on him for money and this is basically how she has to live her life. But when she goes down, she meets... Ah, oh, no, no, what she does... <laughs> so Flora sees this evening as an opportunity to do some nicking because mm. she needs money. Aykroyd doesn't give her enough to live on uh, in the in the sort of life that they lead. So she goes um, So stealing. she goes to Aykroyd's room, she takes £40 out of his drawer, and then she is discovered on the way back down his stairs from his room by Parker, maybe, or maybe Raymond. So she says, oh, I was just going to wish mm. my uncle Roger goodnight. He doesn't want to be disturbed. Mm. And that is uh, that covers that they, they've realised, Poirot and... The, the police and Shepard have realised that there's £40 missing at this point. So that's sort of, they're wondering if that's to do with the mm, murder or not. Mm. And that's sort of the conclusion of that subplot. Yeah. Um, I thought kind of throughout the book that Flora's probably not a very reliable witness in her in her testimony because obviously she doesn't tell them at the beginning of it. Do you know what I quite liked about Major Blunt actually is that you can just totally tell that he thinks very little of this whole stealing thing. Because when when he finds when she says, Oh I've had to lie to get money, he's like, What lying? I like that. Makes me think more of him. I'm not sure we've mentioned this, but obviously uh, Major Blunt uh, fancies Flora. Yeah. He likes her. Yeah, yeah. They want to get married. I think she likes him as well, doesn't she? Yeah, yeah. So that's uh, that's Flora, and obviously Mrs. Ackroyd is kind of attached to that. She's quite peripheral, really, Mrs. Ackroyd. Yeah, I mean, she reminds me. Like I think we were saying, like she's like reminds me of Mrs. Bennett a bit because mm-hmm. she's in yeah. this state of permanent anxiety about money. Yeah, because her husband's died, and yeah, she's attached to this class where. You know, she she can't go out and get a job, really. Yeah, so she um, has to rely on her brother-in-law she for, like, to money. She a gentrified lifestyle. Yeah. And she's just, you know... in Roger Ackford is just messing with them and not yeah. giving them enough money, which yeah. is not very nice. Um, right, so I think um, we should maybe start thinking about drawing some conclusions on, on the murder of Roger Ackroyd. So what, what are your uh, remarks, Bridget? Okay, well, like, the thing's... I like about it are well I mean I guess I like think it's a really good one it's 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 a strong entry it's not my favorite though and I basically feel like the twist thing has overshadowed the whole discussion about the Mm -hmm. book because to me like I think the twist was one of the things that I liked least about it I think the twist is good on its merits Uh, but having said that it does spoil it slightly that you you're not allowed to talk about Roger Ackroyd without spending most of your time talking about the twist. Yeah, I I I think the twist is fair. Like I don't have a problem with it. I just I just don't really like it because it's like it sort of overshadows everything about yeah. it and it becomes yeah. just about that. Um, maybe that's kind of like not the fault of the book that's more like people's response to it mm-hmm. is that they just talk about this twist all the time which is understandable because it is kind of like it's surprising when you read it it's not it's not what you expect is it yeah. and it's the reason that it's ranked as being so influential as well isn't it yeah exactly that's kind of the reason why it's like seen as influential whereas if you take that away what it is is like it's a really it's conventional a good, good detective story yeah it's a it's really good as well mm-hmm. it, but it's very conventional and that's not a bad thing because it's quite like a 
Um, I mean, that's one of like the reasons we version. love Agatha Christie books, yeah. right? That it's um, it's something that you know you're going to get a, a really nice payoff, and things are going to make sense, and you can have a go at working it out, and yeah. so on and so forth. Yeah, I think that it's a really good conventional Agatha Christie. Yeah. Um, personally, I I don't like the voice. Like, I don't like no. Doctor Shepherd's he does, voice. He does. He does put a downer it. on things, doesn't he? It is he, such by a downer. Being, you know, so dismissive of everyone and yeah, everything. Yeah, and when I read it, I just missed Hastings. I was like, I really like Hastings' voice because he's just really nice about everything and he's yeah. not really, like, a downer on everything. No, you wouldn't catch Dr. Shepherd falling in love with the, the pussy <laughs> girl, would you? No, yeah. He has no Hastings love in his heart. Hastings is so, like, naive and sweet and stuff. And it makes Dr. Shepherd seem, like, all horrible and bitter. Oh, yeah. So I, I, well, I he is horrible and bitter. I don't like that aspect of it particularly, but that's just my preference. And, like, going along with that, the other thing which isn't my favourite thing about it is that the crime in it is quite, like, pathetic and, like... It's kind of sordid, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's not... It's not like... It, this sounds a bit, like, tasteless, but it's not, like, a fun crime, is yeah. it? Like, it's not... I mean, got, so... He was blackmailing Mrs. Ferris all along, yeah. and that's where he got that mystery legacy. And exactly. he has to kill Aykroyd so, because so he, he begins to worry that, that Aykroyd might yeah, find the, out. Yeah, the crime is just kind of to, like, hide the stuff that's coming back to haunt him. I like the ones where the crime is like, got a bit of flair, and mm-hmm. it's a bit, like, daring mm-hmm. and exciting. I mean, it's risky what he's done, but it's, like, it's not, like, super creative or anything. Um, some of the other ones are like really silly yeah. and creative. I mean, he and adds, it's, it's not glamorous. Do you he, know what I mean? He adds it's some nice touches. Petty. Like you know, he obviously has his um, the dictaphone. Okay, stuff. that's impressive. That's um, that's his thing. I feel like I think the best things about it is the plotting is really good. It's really like artistically done it's mm-hmm. so complex it's so clever and yeah it's straightforward to follow it's yeah well, it's, it's well easy told. to follow the, mm-hmm. the subplots all hang together brilliantly and there's so many of them i also really like that it's like as i said it's like a conventional like country house mystery and i really like the cast of characters it's really like yeah it's like a game of cluedo or something there's some great people in there. You've got um, you've got like hysterical Mrs. Aykroyd. Yeah. Uh, you've got uh, yeah Agatha Christie lovable rogue, which is yeah. um, Ralph Payton. You've got the dodgy doctor. You've got Raymond as well. He's always coming in with a, a quip. Yeah, he's good. I like him. Yeah, I, I agree. The characters are great. Yeah, in this one. it's a fun cast of characters, and it, it ticks all the boxes, and it's a really good functional Agatha Christie novel. Mm-hmm. Um, I also personally really like Caroline, and I think there's something clever going on there, yeah. building towards Miss Marple and this idea of how you know women detectives can get information in different ways from male detectives, yeah. and I think that that obviously that came to fruition like later in her career and also like i think you can also look at her and be like this is the beginnings of like mrs oliver and stuff Mm -hmm. like that one day poirot would have like a permanent female assistant yeah that who would because mrs oliver does do that like she goes and does the bits that are like oh we need a woman's touch for this and all that kind of thing it's nice to have that alongside like you have the what Shepard perceives as the real detective work, which is going around finding clues, yeah, finding the, stuff on the, the man's floor. work, yeah. and then you have the uh, the, the female detective um, who's gathering um, potentially more useful information on on the people involved. Yeah, there's there's some good and there's some other things which are less my taste, but overall it's just really it's just a really yeah. good Agatha Christie. We're 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 strong on this one. We like it a lot. We like it a lot. Yeah. Great. Thank you.
so much for tuning in to the Crime Fiction Casebook podcast. We really hope you enjoyed our first two episodes about the murder of Roger Ackroyd. In the next episode, we'll be looking at another Poirot story, so stay tuned for more info by following me on Instagram at Crime Fiction Casebook. We hope you join us next time. Goodbye. Bye. listening to the crime fiction casebook podcast the episode was written produced and researched by bridget coulter and james wilson the theme music was also composed performed and recorded by bridget coulter and james wilson again please give me a follow at crime fiction casebook on instagram thanks again for listening and we hope you join us next time goodbye